John chapter 1. We're in a series looking at the Gospel of John. And we come now to the final verses of what has historically been called the prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John. And if you're willing and able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 1, I'll read verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Apostle John wrote his gospel not so much to show us what Jesus did as much as to show us what Jesus meant. The gospel of John, as you've heard the last couple of weeks, has been called a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. John states the purpose of his book, At the very end, he says, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that so by believing you may have life in his name. John was written from a Mediterranean commercialized port city by the best friend of Jesus, who himself was soon to die. The book is to help us learn how to believe and also live. It can handle your questions. It can handle your doubts. It can handle your curiosities about Christianity's ability to meet the demands of an ever-changing culture, which is good news because you know what? It's a very confusing time. The government has been shut down. It just reopened. Men are engaging in intimate acts with robots. Evangelicals are losing credibility. Kanye is going off. Socialism is gaining in popularity. Many Christians are losing confidence. Identity, politics is king. Pain pills are destroying us. Tech is exploding. Guns are up for grabs. Human trafficking is prevalent. Nationalism is spreading. Gen Z wants change, and being woke isn't about your alarm clock. Into this fragile, fragmented, unjust world, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't you hope for change? We hope for change in this age and every age, and we find it by looking at the Word, who is our anchor, Four points this morning I want us to see. Number one, the glory of the Word. 
Two, the witness of the word. Three, the fullness of the word. And fourth, the revelation of the word. First, the glory of the word. The glory, the witness, the fullness, and the revelation of the word is our hope to guide us through changing times. The glory of the word. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Tell me, how did they know that Jesus was different than all the other messianic figures of the first century? It says that they saw his glory. What is glory? Glory comes from the Old Testament word kabod, which meant heaviness. It was the word you'd give to a man riding a camel whose satchel weighed the most. It was weighty. It was heavy with riches. Uh, it might also be someone who, in Isaiah, for example, is weighty with power in Isaiah chapter 8, or with position, as Joseph was in Genesis 45. Kabod associates weight or gravitas to a person's position. But kabod in the Old Testament also echoed the appearance of light. When God's glory would reveal itself, God often appeared with Brightness, the pillar of fire by day, lightning or a blinding light marked God's presence before the people. That was his, in the Old Testament, glory or his kabod. But not only that, when Moses asked to see God's glory, as you heard Harlan read earlier, God displayed something about his person and himself and all of his attributes. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God didn't weigh him down with riches, and he didn't shine a blinding light. God said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And in response to a call for glory, God showed Moses his moral beauty, his goodness, his name, and his sovereignty as an attribute of of the character that would leave nothing to be desired. So kabod, for the ancient people of God, took on the idea of being heavy with riches and power and to be flooded with light and to be resplendent with moral character and beauty. And so when the translators of the Septuagint, the Old Testament, into Greek, were trying to find a word to use to communicate kabod in Greek, they came upon the word doxa, which refers to one's reputation or what one appears to be before others. And in addition to just reputation, the word doxa took on uh, the meaning of, of moral beauty, of weightiness, of person, or of position. And so verse 14 means something like this. We have seen the weight of the riches of his presence, power, and holiness. We have seen his weight They knew that this was Jesus. They knew that this was the Messiah because they saw the weight of all that he did in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And we see this today, don't we, in the church. We see this in the sacraments, for example. We see God's glory in baptism. It just looks like water, and, but God dwells in the presence of his sacraments through the mouths of ministers and through the water 
as it pours over us, he reminds us of his covenant promises, that they are weighty upon us, that they anchor us down in the midst of a changing culture. We see this in the Lord's table, which we'll have again next week. The Lord's table is where Jesus invites you to see the weight of his covenant promises, is able to anchor you as you come to dine with him. And he's there in all of his resplendent glory. Isn't that amazing? And John and his disciples were able to say that we have seen his glory not only because they sensed in some like abstract way that he was powerful, but because God the Son took on human flesh. And the Word became flesh in Jesus, and it manifested infinite riches, inexhaustible light, inexpressible beauty for which the Old Testament saints could only long. You see the glory of the Word, and not only His glory, but you see the witness. Look at verse 15. The Apostle John goes out of his way to show in the ESV what is a parenthetical comment that John the Baptist believed Jesus to be greater than he was. And it's widely, widely um, um, known at the time that there were still followers of John the Baptist. So this was the apostles' way of saying to the followers of John the Baptist, John the Baptist had the very famous saying that said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John, your follower, John the Baptist, said Jesus was greater than he is. So follow Jesus. In this phrase of John, that he who comes after me was greater than me because he was before me, he says again in verse 27, it was a very common phrase that John the Baptist often said back then, and people would have known it. And John the Baptist, in saying, long dead, but yet saying and crying out that this is the Lord, John the Baptist was the first of six people in the Gospel of John to confess that Jesus is the Lord. That the eternal Son took on flesh without relinquishing any of his moral perfection. And that the Word became embodied. And that he became embodied suggests a transition from God, the Son, infinitely resplendent in his pre-incarnate being, became a human being. And the incarnation the doctrine that Jesus took on flesh, that doctrine has perhaps with faith in Christ alone and justification by faith has been the seminal doctrine that Christians across wide swaths of tradition have believed, following John the Baptist's example here in verse 15. He witnessed Jesus was the one embodied and he cried out. And so also we stand on the shoulders of giants like John and we together as Christians say it is a mystery that no good use of the English language could possibly properly communicate that God took on flesh and bone to be for us what we are unable to be perfect in order to be made whole again with our Heavenly Father. In fact, John, 1 John chapter uh, 4 says that the incarnation is defined as the test for determining the presence of the Spirit of God or the presence of the Antichrist in Christian community. As the reflection this morning said, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound, most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. 
God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is as fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. His glory, the witness of John. Third, the fullness of the word. What fullness? Well, the text says that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully God, verses 1 to 4, fully man, down in verse 14. And literally, it means that he pitched his tent with us. It's an allusion to God's dwelling with the Israelites in the wilderness. We're in the past that God manifested his presence to us by dwelling in the tent first and then in the tabernacle. And that now, in Christ, God takes up residence among his people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then in the Old Testament, a man uh, would come to fulfill the Old Testament symbolism would be one who was both perfectly God's representative and also one who is infinitely relatable. And we have that in Christ. And how does that happen? John says that it happens. The Apostle John says that it happens in verse 16. Through grace upon grace. And this phrase, grace upon grace, is, is patterned after the Old Testament words like um, holy of holies or, or song of songs. It's emphatic in Greek to suggest that the link between God and humanity is through grace upon grace. And those of you who are in Christ know that it was only the work of the Holy Spirit that opened your heart to believe because you were running the other way. It was grace upon grace. And the link that brings us into fellowship with each other is purely by God's grace. So you have the glory of his word, the witness of his word by John the Baptist, the fullness of his word, fully God and fully man, grace upon grace. And lastly, you have the revelation of God's word. Look with me up in verse 14. John closes verse 14 with this interesting phrase, full of grace and truth. And these describe the attributes of Jesus, the Son, in the flesh, Pleroma, full, complete. Some say in the Old Testament, you probably have heard this, haven't you? That the Old Testament God was full of anger and justice. The New Testament God was a God of love. No. He's the same God in both the Old Testament and the New. But God knows that because of our sin and that it runs so deep that we would never honor him as God if he were to show us his attributes in any other order than he revealed himself in Scripture. He must reveal himself in his holiness first so that we can be brought to self-awareness and the attention that we are in great need. That we would recognize the depth of that need. And then he shows us his grace. No doctor gives you a prescription before he first gives you a diagnosis. 
And so also the Old Testament becomes the diagnosis and the New Testament becomes the prescription. So please catch yourself thinking the Old Testament God is a God of vengeance and just. No, he's just giving you the diagnosis. And in order for it to penetrate your heart, he has to show himself to be infinitely beautiful and holy because he is. In the New Testament, he gives you the prescription. Grace upon grace. So that when we will see that we are offered grace, his unmerited favor, we would begin to see that in Jesus there is more than all we would want. Jesus is full of grace and truth. In eternity past, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he sees the truth of who we are. And he offers himself to us in grace in perfect fullness of both grace and truth on the cross, where grace and truth met, where God's vengeance came down upon not us, but upon Christ. And out of the blood of Christ flowed the grace upon grace for you and me to be invited in. It's as the old um, church hymn says, Thou, O Christ, are all I want, more than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, and lead the blind. Just and holy is thy name. That's the Old Testament revelation. I am all unrighteousness. The conclusion we draw from reading the Old Testament. Vile and full of sin I am. Awareness of our present spiritual condition. And you are full of truth and grace. The revelation of God's attributes in Jesus. If Jesus hadn't taken on flesh, if the word had not come and dwelt with us, we would have a God of truth, but not of grace. And we would have a God who would be unjust to show mercy to any of us because it would compromise his character as one who is infinite, perfect in moral beauty, without sin, holy in every way. But because that Jesus is full of grace and truth, he shares his glory with us. And not only does he share it with us, Christian, because he came for us, but he shares it with us because he gives it to us. We share it now in part. But we also know that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified, full of glory with him. And so we rejoice, as Peter says, that we share in Christ's suffering so that we may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because we'll share in it. And in perhaps the most mesmerizing verse of the Bible, in John 17, Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as you and I are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be brought to complete unity. The body of Christ in one sense, speaks of the glory of the incarnation when we gather together. But in another sense, God's glory extends to us and through us in a very real way because it's in the hearts of all of those of us who have placed our faith in him. And just as in creation, God's love moved God to spread that love in the creation of the world, so also in our salvation, God's love moves us to extend grace upon grace to those who so desperately need it and need to hear it. The glory, the witness, the fullness, 
and the revelation of the word is our hope to guide us through our changing times. And this is why everything we do at Trinity strives to make much of Jesus. Because we believe he is full of grace and truth and respite, rest, can be found nowhere else but in him. Verse 16, for from his fullness we all have received grace upon the uh, grace. For the law, even through Moses, awareness of sin came. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, who is our hope for renewal. No one has ever seen God. But in Jesus Christ, we see him, who is now at the Father's side and has made him known. And friends, the Apostle John saw him. And we are standing on the shoulder of giants. And like John, we get to see him now. And I do not know, frankly, how long it took John to write the prologue. But we could spend years in these first 18 verses. And I couldn't sleep on Tuesday night. And so... I wrote a poem. It's a poem where every eight syllables uh, rhyme, but I'm not going to read it with emphasis on the rhyming words. I'm just going to read it like a story. It's a story between a Tulsa Christian who meets the Apostle John, and then at the end, we're brought into it. The Tulsa Christian begins... I'm a Christian. Don't you see? I go to church and bend the knee to Tulsa's holy trinity of music, sports, and pedigree. And when I need something, I pray like this. I close my eyes and say, Don't you love me anymore, Lord? I traded in that clunky Ford for something more appropriate for a Western Christian who cut his teeth on talks by those preachers who proclaim poverty teaches that our faith is simply too weak if we cannot summit the peak of prosperity. The chief mark that assures us that all the dark and sinful days are behind me, I sing a closer walk to thee because I know how the story ends. God gives us all Mercedes-Benz. And John, compelled to share from the heart, looked right at my friend, And starts. My friend, I cannot relate to a religion you must hate. The Christianity I know isn't about image or dough or position or even rules as though churches were like schools to make us better citizens. For that would make us denizens of hell on earth. Maybe that's why self-righteous people seem to try the patience of so many. Yes, especially when life's a mess. It's only fitting that I speak the truth in a way that seems so weak. My life of sin just builds up speed. But as grace causes me to plead, your glory, Lord, is all I need. Take my repentance, Father. Need love in me to be repaired to your image as you declared with a fake that is weak and childlike. But to, my, to John, my friend turned and took the mic. No, 
I'm a Christian, don't you get it? I found God and get the credit. It's obvious I'm blessed by God with this surplus of jewelry and silverware fit for a king of God knows where. See my convertible Bentley? It is for souls who don't go gently into that good night. We all know that money is the way to show the world that we are saved from hell and ordinary lives to tell of this narcissistic gospel, which is not a very hard sell in a world that wants it all now but doesn't stop to ask, well, how does that work exactly? Because my friend Sally, who heard the buzz and gave away her savings fund, now lies dying of cancer, stunned that she is not healed quite yet but holds out hope that she will get blessed, anointed, or maybe seen by a handsome devil, Joel Osteen. My friend, there is only one Lord who bends the arc of justice toward himself in love. And what I have seen in life and on Patmos may mean less to you than it does to me, but I desire you to be free. Do you come home to everything you want but feel you have nothing? The youngest son of Zebedee I may be, but what these eyes see seems like yesterday when he said, put down your nets and leave the bread beside the Galilean shore to follow me, John. You're number four. The Lord is not interested in giving you what's divested at the end of your life and caused so much family strife. Whether filthy rich or dirt poor, his son sacrifices the door through which we, by faith, are certain that we no longer need the curtain. And long before the dawn of time, he planned to come and make us mine. The counterintuitive way of wood and straw, of dust and hay, defied all of our philosophies. And our ill-conceived sophistries, he came as prophet, priest, and king, such simple news to which I cling. So turn from these your mundane dreams and quench your thirst upon the streams of living waters of grace, not your performance or wealth or race. Believe in Jesus Christ alone, for your morals cannot atone for the infinite cost of sin. Take it now. He will come in. Trinity, where are you? Are you captive to the suburban living or drinking the bourbon of children's sports or of career, of hearth and home, or of the veneer that you pretend to be okay and you keep other people away and you say you have it all together? Life is good, just like the weather. Rather, let us create a space that is centered upon God's grace to reimagine all the ways that we can be honest about our brokenness and yet still doubt. For all our faith is manifest when we are subject to the test of success and yearly raises, when our life seems filled with praises. But to be blunt, we also know that death and tragedy do show our true colors and spiritual care is subject to ritual. John tells us in chapter 1, his glory, life, the light, the sun, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us because the skin pelt which covered Adam's nakedness and shame with Eve it was a promise that God would keep his bargain and crush the snake in the garden by sending down his own son to take our flesh and bone at one mandatory Roman census in Galilee 
to be with us, to live a life we cannot live and die our death, and to us give a righteousness we did not earn and a forgiveness we cannot spurn. When we are plagued by depression or tempted by an obsession to revolve the world around me, rather than Jesus Christ upon the tree who achieved for us security and three days rose in victory. By faith, not works or wealth or charms is how we run into his arms. The Lord is faithful to his word and bids us come without lamb or bird or a list of all you've done to prove yourself just like my son. You need what you cannot provide. Admit that. And you will abide in a love indescribable. This is the simple news of my Bible. The law reveals my holy code and puts upon you a heavy load to show you how much I care to make you more, far more self-aware of our holy separation and of your need and desperation for Christ. He offers all the grace you need to earn, need not earn to see my face. Run, John, run, performance commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings to soar and a, and a new song to sing. That God's grace changes everything. The prologue of the book of John is worth a thousand years of poetry to communicate the simple truth to us and to every Christian in Tulsa. That we think we understand the gospel and oftentimes we've replaced it with something different. Jesus had to become man because we were unable to admit that which God has known from eternity, that we need him desperately. Can you admit that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in you. I give you back the life that I owe, and then that in your ocean depths, the flow of the gospel may be richer and fuller. May it be so, we pray. Make us people of your word who are so shaped by your word that we are not allured by the dalliances of the world and help us to extend grace upon grace to a city that so desperately needs it because we have been transformed by the best news in all the world ourself that Christ, the incarnate word, came for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for the offertory this morning, if you look down at the bottom of page 14 in your bulletin, just a couple of reminders there to make sure that uh, you fill out the green Trinity Connect card that's in your bulletin packet. If you'll fill that out and drop it in the bucket, and if for some reason you don't get it filled out in time, you can leave it on the welcome table uh, as you leave. And then also a note that for guests, please take a gift from the welcome table if you do that. So let's pray as we uh, prepare for the offertory. Lord, we thank you for this morning, the time to come here, to listen to your word preached, the opportunity to worship. We thank you that you've given us this great privilege. Lord, we thank you mostly for Jesus. 
and you tell us that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Help us to respond to that. There's no other way to respond to that than with just utter thankfulness and gratitude for what you've done for us and how we have all the riches and all the abundant mercies that come through Jesus. Lord, help us to give abundantly. We pray for this congregation that you would provide for us in every way, for our pastors, our staff, that you would uh, provide for the ministries that are going on with the uh, purchase of the land and moving forward with the building. We just pray that you would provide for all of these needs. Help us to give abundantly. Help us to trust in you and to give you thanks and glory for all the good things we have, for we know they come from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.